hey, would you turn to the person sitting next to you and tell them you made it? Tell them. Just go ahead. You made it. <laughs> and if you think, well, what did we make it to? Well, you made it to the end of this study on the life of Abraham. Way to go. You held all the way through it. Can you believe it? Today is week number 11. For the last 10 Sundays, we have been walking along with Abraham and Sarah and learning some life lessons about faith and, and some family lessons about faith and how it is that as Abraham and Sarah walked with God, that we can walk with God. Now, it's kind of hard to believe that in 10 weeks, we could cover a 100 years of Abraham and Sarah's lives together here on the earth. But that's exactly what we've done. If you remember from Genesis chapter 12, when they entered into the land, Abraham was 75 years old and his wife Sarah was 65 years old. And today we're going to be in chapter number 25 and Abraham is 175 years old. Now, realizing, of course, as we've mentioned in the past, that in those days people lived far longer than we live now. Sarah herself lived to be 127 years old. Back in chapter number 23, she died and was buried in the cave of Machpelah at the age of 127. Now Abraham is 175 and he has been a widower of his beloved Sarah, although he did marry again, chapter 25 tells us, he married a woman by the name of Keturah, uh, but he's been widowed from his beloved Sarah for 48 years. And in chapter 25, at 175 years old, his life comes to an end. And you may say, well, that's long enough. 175 years is long enough. Now, look at chapter 25 and verse number 7, the poetic way that this is presented. And I love it. It's beautiful. He says in verse number 7, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life. You know, we all only get one life. It's plural years, plural days, singular life. We all only get one life. And the life that we are given, no matter how long it lasts, and, and sometimes, most often, it lasts many years, and other times it lasts perhaps fewer years, but, but no matter how many years that we have, our lives are made up of days that roll into years and then, the, and then the decades and then ultimately our life comes to an end. And when we're young and invincible and nothing can take us out and we're going to live forever, it seems like our life will always go on and the end is far away. But if you've lived a lot of those years, you would agree with me, wouldn't you, that the days of the years of our life pass pretty quickly, don't they? You know, there's an old saying that says, the days are long, but the years are short. It really is true. And I've actually discovered that the older that I get, the days are pretty short as well. Uh, Tracy and I sometimes would go to bed at night, and I was like, didn't we just get up? I mean, it just the day just went by just like that. Our lives are passing. And one day, all of us will be in the same place where Abraham was in verse number seven, not at 175 years, I'm confident, but we will come to the end of the days of the years 
of our life. We ought to be aware that that day will get here sooner than we think it will get here. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 90 in verse number 12. He wrote, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Help me to be wise, not living foolishly, but wise, understanding that my days are numbered. Well, in chapter 25, Abraham's days are expiring. Let's read it, beginning in verse number 7, Genesis 25. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived. A hundred and threescore and fifteen, the King James, is 175 years. And then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age and an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, which is before Mamre. This is the field which Abraham had purchased from the sons of Heth. And this is where Abraham was buried along with Sarah, his wife. Now this is the scene that plays out over and over again in every family life in cycles. A procession slowly approaches a tomb or a grave. The family and the friends have come together to lay to rest someone that they loved. And chief among the mourners is the widow or the widower of that one who is being buried. The, the most grieving person in the assembly is the one who is burying that, that spouse, that mate that they've lived with through the years of their lives together. They gather around the grave and a few words are spoken. Maybe a song is sung, a prayer is prayed, and then the family will rise. I've seen this so many times in ministry. They'll slowly walk back to their cars and make their way home. And again, stooped more than any among them, not because of age necessarily, but because of the weight of grief is that husband who's buried his wife or that wife who's buried her husband. And they now must go on through life without that spouse. Give it some time, a few months at the least, maybe a few years, even a few decades as in Abraham's case. But the assembly will return to that cemetery. They'll come again and this time they will be bearing the body of that grieving widow or widower who had been there all those months or those years before. And that one who has now passed will be reunited in the grave, reunited in death with their loved one, their spouse with whom they had walked through life together, now they will be reunited in the grave. Now the good news is, if they knew Jesus as their Savior, they are reunited not simply in death, but much more than that, they are reunited in eternal life. That's the good news, right? That would be a terribly sad story if there were no gospel. But there is a gospel. There is the good news of Jesus Christ. And if they both trusted in Christ, then they will have the joy, as Paul writes in Thessalonians, of being together forever with the Lord. And certainly, Abraham and Sarah both had faith. And we've been walking with them along this journey. 
of faith. If you're in life group, and I hope you are in a life group, and uh, if your life group is studying uh, this Abraham series within your actual life group gathering, then you'll remember that last week you were asked in your life group gathering a really great question. It was this question. In one sentence, how would you describe Abraham's journey of faith? I thought it was such a great question. In our life group that Trace and I have in our home, we had a great time just chatting about that for a minute and trying to to put a sentence together that we would have used to describe Abraham's journey of faith. And whatever that sentence was, maybe it would have been a fitting uh, sentence to put on Abraham's tombstone. Now, I don't think that Ishmael and Isaac erected any sort of marker at the cave of Machpelah. I don't think there was a tombstone that, were there, that was there. But if there had have been, perhaps that tombstone would have read, here lies Abraham, a man of great faith. He was that, wasn't he? We've learned that over the years. Here lies Father Abraham, a man of great faith. But imagine... If Ishmael and Isaac had put that tombstone up and had inscribed those words on it and had stepped back and were admiring this declaration of the faith of their father, imagine if a passerby came and stopped and looked at it with them and read it. Here lies Father Abraham, a man of great faith. And what if he turned to these two sons and said, prove it. (laughs) Can you prove that your father had faith? In the Lord? Can you prove that he was a man of faith? How do you think they might have responded to that? I mean, they probably would have been offended by such a question in such a moment, but imagine if once they got over being offended, they had tried to give an answer to how they could prove that their father was a man of faith. What do you think they would have said? I mean, they probably would have said something like, well, of course he was a man of faith. Everybody knew that he was a man of faith. He was the friend of God. They would have no doubt said. He followed God from his homeland. God called him out of his homeland, told him to come into the land of Canaan. And for a hundred years, he walked with God. Maybe they would have said, well, of course he was a man of faith. He was a man of prayer. He was an intercessor. We know of how he prayed. They might have said he was a worshiper. He was a builder of altars. He was a a tither to Melchizedek. He was a rescuer of Lot. He was kind and gracious to Lot. He was kind and gracious and faithful to their mother, at least Isaac's mother, uh, Sarah. They might have given all of these evidences of his life of faith. And then they would have perhaps said this, we know that our father was a man of faith and we know it because of the way he lived. I want you to write down this principle from Abraham's life. And if you don't remember anything else from 11 weeks of studying Genesis 12 to 25, remember this. Abraham's life teaches us that good works are the evidence of authentic faith. 
Good works are the evidence that our faith is authentic. Now, we're going to be back in Genesis in just a a bit, but I want you to make your way over to the New Testament. We're headed to the book of James, but I want you to stop in Matthew chapter 5, if you will. Just on your way to James, stop in Matthew chapter 5. Look with me in verse number 16. I want you to hear the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he's telling his followers that they are the light of the world and that everybody knows that if, you're, if you have a light, you don't cover it up, but you let it shine. Listen to what he says in Matthew 5 and verse number 16. Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. They may see your good works. And through your good works or by your good works, they will then glorify the God in whom you say you have placed your faith. They will glorify your Father which is in heaven. Jesus said in in the Sermon on the Mount that good works are the testimony in the life of the believer to the glory of God and the authenticity of our faith. Listen to how Paul said it in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That God has saved us that we might do good works, which God has prepared in advance as our way of life. Paul says that God has predetermined, Christian, that your life is to be a life of good works. And Jesus says that the good works that you conduct in your life will in fact be a testimony to your faith and the glory of the God in whom you say that you trust. So if Abraham's life is an example of good works as the authenticity of our faith, if Jesus in the most important sermon ever delivered said that our good works authenticate our faith and glorify our Father, and if Paul said that God has determined before he made the world that when we would be reborn in Christ, we would live a life of good works, would you agree with me that good works must be pretty important to the Christian life? Certainly, they are. So what are good works? When the Bible says that we ought to live with good works, what exactly does it mean? Well, let's talk about the two words. It's very simple. The the Bible word for good simply is a word which means what is beautiful or lovely. Um, It is what is becoming, something that is pure or right or proper. And then secondly, the word works is the Greek word ergon. It simply means what you do, your toil, your your labor. It is your actions or your efforts or the work that you do for Christ. Beautiful, lovely works for Christ. Things that are becoming of a Christian that are actions or deeds that are done for Christ. Here's the way I would say it. I hope you'll jot this down somewhere. What the Bible is teaching us is that each Christian life should be beautifully adorned with attitudes and actions and acts of service which validate one's claim to saving faith. Every Christian should live a life beautified with actions, attitudes, and acts of service 
which validate our claim to saving faith. Now, this is exactly the point of the book of James. And in the book of James, he illustrates this truth for us in the life of Abraham. And so we're going to read about it in James chapter number 2. If you'll follow along uh, as I begin reading. James chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 14. Listen to the words of James. He begins with a question in verse 14. What does it profit, my brothers? What good is it, my brothers? Uh, If a man says he has faith, and yet he does not possess works, can faith save him? Here's James's question. Is faith enough? Or should there be works along with faith? He illustrates this point in verse 15. If a brother or a sister uh, is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you do not give them those things which are needful for the body. What good is that? What profit does it have? In the same way, verse 17, Even so, faith, if it does not have works, is dead being alone. Verse 18, a man may say, you have faith and I have works. James replies, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God and you are correct, you do well. The devils also believe and they tremble. But will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now he illustrates this truth with Abraham beginning in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Do you not see how that his faith was working together with his works and by those works his faith was made perfect or complete. And the scripture was fulfilled. By that act, the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then, verse 24, how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also, second illustration is with Rahab the harlot. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers, the spies, and had sent them out another way? Concluding illustration, verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, even so in the same way, faith without works is dead. So, wow. Important words from the pen of James. Now, I don't have time, of course, to unpack for you this entire kind of theme of, uh, of this letter of James to his uh, Jewish Christian friends. But let me just suffice it by saying that when you read the book of James, a good way to, to um, say it is to say that you are reading about Christian faith in shoe leather. If there were a subtitle to the book of James, it might be this. The book of James, practical instructions for how Christian faith impacts daily living. That'd be a great subtitle. 
practical instruction for how Christian faith impacts daily living. James asks penetrating questions in this passage that we've just read. Impassioned questions. Look at the first one, verse number 14. What good is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but there's no works to go along with that faith? Look at verse number 20. Will you know, O man, don't you understand, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? The vital point that James is making, and I want all of you to hear me, is that there is such a thing as a presumptive faith or an empty faith which does not bring salvation. Listen carefully to me. There is such a thing as a belief in God which does not result in the salvation of the soul. He illustrates this as plainly as can be illustrated in verse 19 when he says, you believe, you have faith that there is one God. That's correct. The demons believe that very thing and they tremble. In fact, those of you who say, I believe there's one God and yet you're not a Christian, the demons believe it more than you do because they have sense enough to tremble. You say you believe it, and you'll even tremble about the fact. But the demons say they believe it, and they tremble. So what he's, what he's reminding us of, what he is penetrating uh, our hearts with, is that there is this kind of faith which is not, in fact, saving faith. So here's the question. What kind of faith did Abraham have? And what kind of faith is saving faith? I want you to write it down. James is going to tell us here, and we'll see some other authors in the New Testament as well. But go ahead and jot it in your notes. It is this. Saving faith is trusting in God alone for salvation or for righteousness. Saving faith is trusting in God alone for righteousness. So let's begin with this basic gospel premise that all of us understand. It is this this foundational, fundamental, New Testament truth that all of us recognize. It is that if y'all are listening both campuses, shout amen. amen. Here's the premise, the basic gospel message, that salvation is not received by works, but by faith in Christ alone. That is a fundamental, thoroughly biblical, New Testament, theological, foundational basis of all that we know to be true. Salvation does not come by works. Listen to what Paul says about this in Galatians 2 and verse 16. He says, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but rather through the faith of Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Why? Because we know that by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now you may be thinking, but but wait a minute. Didn't James just say the opposite? If Paul says we're saved by faith alone, not by works, is James contradicting 
the Apostle Paul. Look at what he says. Again, let me show it to you. Verse number 21. He, he uses Abraham as an example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac upon the altar? Look at verse number 25. His second illustration is Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. He says in verse 25, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works? So the question is, is James contradicting Paul? Are y'all listening to me? Here's the answer. No! He's not contradicting Paul at all. You say, how's he not contradicting Paul? Because James is not speaking about the law at all. He's not speaking about keeping the law of Moses. And one of the reasons we know this is because of the two illustrations that he used. Number one, Abraham. Abraham lived 500 years before Moses. The law of Moses didn't even exist at that time. And so the works of Abraham were not the works of keeping the law. They couldn't have been. The second illustration that he uses is the illustration of Rahab. Was not Rahab justified by her works? Was he talking about the works of the law? No, because Rahab is a Gentile harlot living in Jericho. She had never even heard of the law of Moses, let alone had she not, uh, she didn't know what that law said. So when James talks about the works of Abraham and the works of Rahab, he's not saying that they are saved by the works of the law. In fact, look at verse 23 again. James clearly affirms that salvation comes by faith or believing alone. Verse number 23, uh, listen to how he says it. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and that belief or that faith was imputed to him for righteousness. It means it was counted to his account as righteousness, and he is called the friend of God. When was Abraham called the friend of God? Genesis 15, verse 6 the illustration of his works that Abraham uses did not occur until Genesis 22. And so Abraham was justified before he ever offered up Isaac on the altar. He was justified simply by believing, by trusting in God. But while the Bible is clear to tell us that saving faith is trusting in God alone for righteousness, without works, the Bible is also telling us that saving faith is working faith. A faith that saves is a faith that will produce good works. Listen to how the Bible says this. Verses 17, or I'm sorry, 14, 15, 16, 17. What James is doing, listen carefully, he is not teaching that we are saved by being good, that salvation results from works. But what he is affirming is that salvation will produce good works. And he makes this point so clearly. Perhaps, I don't know this, but perhaps James is being so emphatic about this, 
Because perhaps he is concerned that there were so many people in his day who were claiming faith in Jesus Christ who had precious little life evidence to substantiate their claim. And if James was worried about that in his day, I think we should be worried about it in our day. There are lots of people, I would dare say there are some in this room this morning, some of these campus or online, who you have a claim to faith in Jesus. You say that Jesus is your Savior. You claim that you have trusted in Christ and that heaven is your home. And yet, any honest investigation of the habits, attitudes, actions, and practices of your life would yield precious little evidence that what you say of your faith is actually true. This is James' concern. It becomes obvious when you read his question in verse number 14. What good is it? If you say you have faith and there's no works to back it up, what's that worth? What good is it if a man says he has faith and yet he doesn't have works? He says, is that enough? Is his faith enough? Look at what he says in verse number 18. He says, one will say, uh, you have faith, I have works, I have works, you have faith. We go back and forth, but he says, listen, you show me your faith Without your works, here's the way I'll show you that my faith is authentic. I will show you my faith by my works. And this is when he arrives at the illustration of Abraham beginning in verse number 21. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Do you not see, don't you understand how that his faith, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, his confidence in God, his faith was working together. If y'all are listening, shout amen. His faith was working together with his works. And as they worked together, his faith was made perfect. It means his faith was made obviously manifest or complete and obvious. In other words, when Abraham in Genesis 22 received the command from God, take your only son, your son Isaac, whom you love, and go to Mount Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. That inconceivable command from God. Inconceivable because Abraham loved Isaac so much because he was his miracle child of his old age. But inconceivable because upon Isaac hinged all of the promises of God. It was an unthinkable command and yet God made it. And Abraham believed God so much, he was so confident, he trusted, he had such faith in God that he took his son and was prepared to offer him upon the, offering, upon the altar. And James says, do you not see that when he said he had faith, that was one thing, but when he would obey God regardless, that work, working with that faith, made his, the claim of his faith complete, made it clear. It didn't save him, it made it obvious that he was, in fact, a man of faith. And so James asks this penetrating question that all of us should answer. Do you, like the demons, believe the truth of who God is, 
but you don't trust in him as your savior. Do you like the person who says to a cold and hungry one, go be blessed and warmed and enjoy a good night's rest in your warmth and your full belly even though you don't clothe them or bring them in or feed them? What good is that? He says, do you have a faith that has no works? And so he would ask the question, what good is that? Saving faith is trusting in Christ for righteousness alone. But saving faith is a faith that will produce works, good works. The third and final thing I would just point out to you from this passage is that a working faith, a saving faith is a working faith, and a working faith is an evident faith. It will leave a lasting legacy. Again, this is what James is telling us in verses 21, 22, and 23. Abraham had faith. He was righteous and the friend of God before he made this offering or would have made this offering of Isaac. And yet that offering, that obedience, that good work evidenced his faith. And I would suggest to you that this is what we remember about Abraham. We remember not his faith, but we remember his works, which make his faith so evident. I cannot tell you, I'm not overstating it, it would be impossible for me to tell you the number of times in nearly four decades of pastoral ministry that I have stood at the grave of someone who has passed away with their family members clinging to the hope of a prayer that they prayed some many years ago while there was never any real evidence of salvation in their lives. I can't tell you the mothers that have said to me, I remember God lived 25, 30, 40, 50 years, zero good works, zero evidence of salvation in his life. And he dies. And his brokenhearted mother, bless her heart, I'm trying to comfort her and she's clinging. He's in heaven. I know he's in heaven because when he was seven, he prayed a prayer and got baptized, but there was never any evidence of it. Saving faith leaves a legacy. It leaves the evidence of transformation. Someone has said it this way. I think it's a beautiful illustration. That our faith is the canvas. And every, all of our works, each stroke of the paintbrush is our, is our good works. And the canvas holds it all. But what will be remembered is not the canvas. What will be remembered is the painting on the canvas. God gave you a canvas, a blank canvas when you came to Christ. And now your life is to be a life that evidences that canvas of faith by covering it with a life of good works. This is what Abraham did. And it's his legacy. And this is the reason that if a passerby had come to Ishmael and Isaac and said, prove it, they wouldn't have talked about what he said about his faith, they would have talked about how that his faith was obvious in his life. I want to ask you to do two things as we close. One is, Christian, would you commit yourself today? Would you recommit your life today to a life resembling the faith life of Abraham? Not words only, but a life so full of good works, so filled with attitudes, actions, and acts of service by the power of the Holy Spirit, instructed by the Word of God, 
serving the Lord with good works, would you commit yourself to that life that you will leave a legacy of good works? And that nobody will stand at your grave and say, well, I think he was a Christian. I'm not sure, but I think so. No. Live a life so as to leave no doubt. And the second thing I would ask you to do is this. If you have made a profession of faith somewhere in your past and any honest investigation of the last decade, two decades, ten decades, well, that'd be a long time, four or five decades, whatever. If you look at your life honestly and you go, you know what I said back then I got saved, but the truth is there's precious little evidence of it. There's just not. Then I want to ask you to give your life to Jesus today. And stop hanging on to something that happened when you were a kid that hadn't changed your life one iota. Call on Jesus. Ask him to be your savior and trust in him as your Lord today.